We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat. And if you'd like to join me and the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, in person for mojitos, then all you have to do is head over to drinkswithharry.com. Yes, I have my own domain name for it. I'm rather impressed with that too myself. Drinkswithharry.com. And there you can buy tickets to Sasta Annual 2018 with not only 10% off the ticket price, but exclusive access to mojitos with me. Yes, apparently that is now a prize. However, to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Ben Yurecki to the hot seat today. Now, Ben is the co-founder and CEO at DigitalOcean. Under Ben's leadership, DigitalOcean has risen from a cloud startup for developers to the second largest and fastest growing cloud computing platform. To date, more than 700,000 developers have developed more than 20 million cloud servers, and the company's expanded its worldwide infrastructure footprint with multiple data center locations around the globe. The company's also raised $123 million in funding from the likes of Andreessen Horowitz, Access Industries, I Ventures, Crunch Funded, and Techstars, just to name a few. And prior to DigitalOcean, Ben co-founded and built a managed hosting provider that supported some of the top websites online and generated multi-million dollar revenues. I'd also have to say a huge thanks to both David Cohen and Jason Lampkin for the intro to Ben today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, if you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, hiring executives, developing managers, and retaining top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there. Well, thanks to our friends at WePay, let me introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS, Invoice Ninja, the leading open source platform to invoice, accept payments, track expenses, and time tasks. What's remarkable about Invoice Ninja is how fast and easy it is. Customers can create invoices in seconds and then get back to what they really want to do. But easy doesn't always mean stripped down as the platform offers tons of additional functionality to serve different use cases, from automatic billing to multiple tax settings. Many businesses start with a free forever plan. However, others seeking the most advanced features see more value in pro and enterprise plans. And you can learn more at invoiceninja.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Invoice Ninja did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta, where you'll also find a really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Get it at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Ben Yurecki, co-founder and CEO at DigitalOcean. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ben, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, having heard so many great things from your brother, uh, David Cohen, and the team at IA, and Peter Levine. So a huge thank you for joining me today, Ben. Absolutely, Harry. Pleasure to be here. I'd love to get started today with a little about you and how you and your brother came to found the behemoth that is now DigitalOcean. Yeah, absolutely. It's always interesting working with family. We started our first company together in 2003 called uh, ServerStack, and we did that for about eight years. It was a bootstrap business, no outside investment. Grew it to about five or six million in revenue and 20 employees. And eight years in, in 2011, really stepped back and surveyed the landscape 
landscape, what we saw is we were competing at that time with a company called Rackspace that did managed hosting, and we were losing one prospect after another. The conversation went the same every time. ServerStack provided more support, newer hardware at half the cost, and the prospect always seemed to really enjoy the conversation. Then there's a two-week radio silence, and when they come back, they say, hey, we actually chose Rackspace. And so, <laughs> you know, I tell them that's that, that, that was obviously a great decision. And, you know, what that taught us is a very important lesson in differentiating and, and creating a unique position. But more importantly, what we were concerned about is that Amazon Web Services had really become mainstream and fundamentally challenged our business model, which was based on a dedicated server. And at that point in time, we knew that cloud was a much better way to build applications for scale. And so we decided to actually branch out and build an entirely new company while running our first business. And that formed the origin for DigitalOcean. And what we recognized is that there was this segment of the market that we call you know, developer. So m- much smaller businesses, startups, the new web and SaaS companies that are being built, they have a totally different set of needs than the traditional enterprise that was turning to these hyperscale cloud solutions. And so what we wanted to do was build a business that fit into this developer tools ecosystem, where now it's pretty ubiquitous that if you're going to build an application, you will share and collaborate on your code with, uh, with GitHub. You can use Stripe to process payments. You would use Twilio to message your users. And what we're trying to create is that you actually run your application on DigitalOcean. And the reason why uh, developers choose us is the simplicity of the product that we built. And so day one, that was a developer that spins up a server. And where we're headed today is developer teams can move faster with DigitalOcean. So the elegance of our API, our user interface, our pricing, and the features and functionality that we provide allows engineering teams to build faster with DigitalOcean. And you say about kind of moving faster there and scaling. I want to talk about scaling and scaling processes, both in terms of fundraising and then go-to-market strategies today. So if we start on the fundraising element, you've now raised over $123 million for DigitalOcean. I'm intrigued. What have been the big learnings then in pitching, how to say respectfully, a not-so-sexy business in in DigitalOcean to VCs? (laughs) Yeah, that's always been a fun question to answer when you walk in the door and the high-level points are you're competing with Amazon, you're selling to developers, and you're going to differentiate on love and simplicity. So it was definitely a a, a difficult pitch to deliver. Now, the good news about our not-so-sexy business, as you call it, is that we had significant traction and customers to show for it. And so our very first investor, IA Ventures, had the privilege of really getting to know the company before we hit traction. And at that point in time, they actually said, you know, we're not quite ready to make an investment. Why don't you go to Techstars instead and see if you can really curate your pitch and prove out the business model. And so we spent uh, three months in 2012 doing the, uh, the Techstars incubator program, which was amazing. And then ultimately, we were able to close our seed round with IA Ventures about nine months later. How did you look to relationship build with VCs and really gain that that trusted relationship then pre-investment? And what would you advise for founders looking to do it? Also, maybe for the first time when they're interacting with the VC community? Yeah, it was actually an entirely new environment that we needed to figure out. And so we had no real relationships with VCs. I'd say the most important thing is really to build that actual relationship. You'll need at least three significant interactions before 
or if you're lucky, actually getting a set of terms. And so the first step is really the hardest. How do you network your way into a VC if you don't have a network to get in touch? Now, there's no easy way to solve that. It's it's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of coffee meetings. It's getting yourself out there. And what we've learned is that it doesn't really help to contact the VC directly. You need a warm introduction. And so that's why Techstars was so valuable to us as they brought a network that we didn't have. And what was interesting when we did our Series A, our second round, we actually created a spreadsheet and put in the top 10 or 15 names in in the Valley, world-class VCs. And we were able to set up a meeting with every single person there. So it just really speaks to the power that a network can give you. And, you know, we worked our way down the list. Number one in that spreadsheet was Andreessen Horowitz. And we were lucky enough that we built a very meaningful dialogue with uh, Peter Levine and ultimately closed that investment. And once you close that investment and the relationships built, there there are many debates with regards to setting up terms and, and really building a board that's effective. So if we break those down, what would your guidance be with regards to setting up the terms efficiently? Yeah, absolutely. We had a lot of help from outside counsel. I went to a New York Tech meetup where Gunderson Detmer was one of the sponsors and they had a really good value proposition. They basically said, come talk to us and we'll give you legal advice for free and figure out payment terms thereafter. And so I figured, hey, this is awesome. Let's bring on board some heavy hitters that know what they're doing. And so we benefited tremendously by working with uh, Gunderson Detmer. They gave us a ton of insight into how to build a board, how to structure it, and make sure that our terms were really clean. We were very focused on a founder-friendly and company-friendly set of terms. And the good news being, you know, our business validated that we can win in that conversation. And so day one with our seed round, we actually established a five-person board, two company or common uh, seats, two preferred or investor seats, and also one independent, which is a really good structure. At that point in time, we were only able to fill three of them. So Moisey and I as common shareholders and the new investor IA Ventures with Brad Gillespie coming on board. And we had two other positions that were vacant at the time. You said that about company and founder friendly. I'm intrigued, especially in today's environment where they're very much differentiated. How do you view the two and are they not slightly opposing potentially in today's environment? Yeah, I think there is a difference. You're right in terms of company friendly and, and founder friendly. I would say our terms were more company friendly and kind of the founders took you know a secondary priority. We actually had a, a vesting schedule for every single founder, which proved to be useful. Unfortunately, not every founder is with the business today and that vesting schedule helped to protect the company. The good news is that we still get together on our anniversaries and celebrate you know huge milestones. We all love each other. We're all friends. It was definitely a bumpy road to get here. We had five co-founders and you know we still all absolutely love each other. So the point that I'm trying to make is in terms of company-friendly terms, you know, you're trying to balance what you're giving away to the investor in terms of liquidation preferences, in terms of voting rights. And I think you want to strike the right balance where obviously the investors are helping you in your journey and you want to ensure that you're really partnered well. And I think by putting the company first ahead of both the investors and the founders, it actually creates a much higher level of alignment. And I do want to really compliment uh, Gunderson and doing a great job in setting the right template and framework for those terms and those agreements that followed. Can I ask, in terms of the the board and the board composition, I'm often told that that sometimes uh, 
uh, a board shouldn't be composed so early. We're very often told that. When do you think it's the right time to compose the board? And how do you think about that in terms of kind of the framework? Yeah, my opinion is if you're raising a round, you should definitely build a board in conjunction with that. Even now, if it's a seed round? Even if it is a seed round. You don't have to have every single seat filled and you don't have to meet on a very aggressive cadence. You know, just doing a quarterly meeting is good. What I've found the most value from creating a board is the time that the company takes leading up to a board meeting to really reflect on the progress that it's made, identify its key challenges, and really what it creates is an opportunity to do a retrospective every quarter to figure out what are the big wins, what are the big challenges, and have a really useful conversation first and foremost at the management level of the company, and then obviously getting the board's feedback as well. So I I do believe that having a board early on actually benefits the business. And if you raise capital, you're creating an entirely new business construct. And I think with that comes some new responsibilities. And I think a a board can really help to champion the right ones. Can I ask, did you have any challenges yourself moving through the business structures there in terms of kind of the the composition and adding new names? Yeah, I mean, there's there are always challenges in any negotiation. So one of the things by the time we got to our third round, we actually didn't have enough seats for the new investor coming on board. So one of the things we had to work through was to change the structure of the board. Some of the benefits that we had going in is we were able to maintain this kind of company-friendly set of terms and use the previous rounds uh, as a template for the new rounds of funding that we were to raise. But uh, I think it's great opportunities to really check in and understand where the business is going on a a multi-year level. And so much like board meetings can have a quarterly or an annual focus, when you go to raise funding, you actually start to look a couple of years ahead. And I think that reflection is absolutely necessary if you're going to build a long-term business. In in terms of kind of the second element of scaling, one thing that's obviously crucial is scaling the go-to-market. On that note, you've said to me before that you don't necessarily have a traditional sales org. So you left it there with the cliffhanger. So tell me first, what's the structure of the sales team and, and the reasoning behind this structure? Yeah, so the amazing thing is we've been able to scale to 1 million customers without a sales team, period. And that is something that is definitely unique in the SaaS market. But if you think about you know the way that we're acquiring customers, getting our product out there, I think it's actually very difficult to achieve this tremendous user scale if you only rely on a sales team. A sales team inherently implies that you have people selling the product. And what we focused on with DigitalOcean from day one is how can the product actually sell itself? And that really speaks to the value of simplicity that we built into the user experience and into the service that we were creating. We wanted to make sure that someone was able to visit the website and figure everything out on their own. And that's what allows us to sign up 800 customers a day at this point. Can I ask, obviously with the self-service model being incredibly low touch and not requiring those sales, is there ever an element that, that wants to move upscale and really move into the high enterprise, high, high ACV, where the sales 
team is required? So before we get into a sales team, what we've built today at DigitalOcean is a customer success team. We do have some customers that have really grown their spend with us and are actually spending over a million dollars a year with DigitalOcean. And so for those customers, we want to make sure that we're providing a higher level of touch. We really are proactive in that relationship. We understand the customer's needs and their challenges. It's actually been really good in terms of soliciting feedback for our roadmap. Those customers also push the limits of performance, reliability, and scale. And the improvements we're making then cascade down to the rest of the million customers that we have as well. So for us, it's been marketing first, customer success second, and we're hopeful that a sales team is something that we can revisit perhaps in 2018. Can I ask, what are your views on on customization per customer? And, And how do you think about customers playing a role in product roadmap? Yeah, so this is really interesting. Day one, we said that we would not customize on a per customer basis. And, you know, I think you need to really make your own decision there. If you're going more towards the enterprise and you'll be beholden to a few customers that generate a tremendous amount of revenue for your business, you may not have a choice but to actually build features and functionality that's customized for the customer. We wanted to build a very different business and model. So we said, let's focus on the developer and let's kind of use a lowest common denominator. If you fit into the developer profile, then whatever we build should work for our largest customer as well as our smallest customer. The real difference comes into the performance and scalability and the reliability of a product. But in terms of our true roadmap, we always make sure that when we're building a feature, it will be able to service as wide of a customer base as possible. Can I ask, what are the core components? You said there about kind of not having a sales team and driving direct growth kind of bottoms up. What are the core components then to creating that really engaged and, and harness community that produces such word of mouth? Absolutely. So for us, it was two parts. One, I cannot underscore the importance of the product itself. We built something that we loved using ourselves. And as we identified with the kind of the developer persona, we knew that customers out there would love the product as much as we did. So that's first and foremost. This is shown in our NPS, which is just shy of 70. It's kind of, you know, you can see it in the social space where everyone tweets and shares kind of the DigitalOcean service. We have a a number of blogs that were written about us and we really made a name for ourselves first and foremost with the product and the experience itself. So that really helped kind of start the snowball. The second thing that we did, which was very unique, is we were very intentional about building a community day one when we started the company. And we focused on the open source community. Uh, What a lot of other companies do is they try to build a community directly around their product. The challenge is in the early days, there aren't that many people that are part of that community. So what we did is we kind of did a second order approach. And we said, if you're using open source projects to build modern web-based applications. Let's help that person really figure out how to use open source tech, best practices, how-tos, and guides that really allow them to solve their tech 
technical challenges. And the, the theory was it not only do we increase trust and help the user along in, in their personal journey, but at the same time, if you're actually building open source servers and databases and all of those things, you're going to need a place to run them. And it's pretty obvious that DigitalOcean is a great provider. And so what we get is access to this tremendous user base that visits our community to learn about open source. We actually get 3 million visitors a month to the content that we've generated at this point. And most importantly, it's not DigitalOcean specific. So this information will help you with any provider or any development environment that that you're using. And I think that's the most important thing about building a, a community is having the right vision for it. And what we said from day one is, you know, almost if you go back a decade or two, when I first kind of started tinkering with computers and I was on IRC and there wasn't as much information available on the web, but the open source community was there trying to help each other out and really providing all of this information that didn't exist anywhere else. And so what we wanted to do was kind of pay homage to those roots and create a place where we talk about best practices in building and scaling open source projects. A great analogy is what Stack Overflow has been able to do with their community. The big difference is Stack Overflow's thesis has been, if you have a problem, copy and paste that error message and we'll help you solve it. We took a much broader approach and just said, if you're building applications, if you're building open source, this is the best way to run those projects and to run those applications. I do I do want to dive into a quick fire round now, and we're calling it Ben's 60 Seconds Faster. So four questions, four minutes. How does that sound? Sounds great. So what hire do you wish you'd made earlier and, and why? Yeah, one of the first key hires that we needed to make was our VP of People, Matt Hoffman. And we scaled to about 100 people and didn't necessarily put in all of the right kind of processes and communication to support a company of that size. So what wound up happening as a result of really dramatic growth, I think it was in uh, 2014 that we grew from 30 people to 120 by the end of the year without having that foresight is we encountered quite a few obstacles along the way. And I certainly wish that we hired a, a head of people that can help us think through some more, the right forums to create. We now do a great all hands meeting every other week, we make sure that we bubble up the right conversation and have a really an HR team that's very talent development oriented. So that was a key hire for us. Talk to me. What are the breaking points in, in the scaling of SaaS companies? You hinted at it there. What are the key breaking points? Yeah, I'd say, well, one, just to kind of piggyback on the last question, certainly employee growth is actually a huge scaling challenge. I'd say right around when you're going past 50 people, the business takes on a radically different composition. Your role as CEO becomes much longer term oriented. The way you plan the processes that you use have to really continue to evolve with the growing employee base. So that that's definitely a, a scaling challenge. And I'd say the second one is if you have to change your go-to-market strategy. Right now, we're not being forced into it, but we're looking to evolve. You know, Our success on the organic side with our community, with our product has been nothing short of amazing. And what we want to do at this point is become much more intentional and put dollars into marketing programs that layer on top of the organic growth that we've been able to achieve to accelerate the business, you know, accelerate revenue and, and customer acquisition. So whenever you're figuring out how to go after a new segment, and one of the shifts that we're trying to make is let's continue to really engage with this broad developer community, but let's also start to talk about teams and 
and what they would need to scale any software application on DigitalOcean. Final quickfire, pros and cons of co-founding with your brother. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one. This is going to so cause the, a fight. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So a huge pro is that you can have really honest and meaningful conversations with no holds barred. What that allows you to do is make sure that issues aren't swept underneath the rug. You're always focused on the right or at least what you know collectively you believe is the right thing. The challenge is that sometimes those conversations are not necessarily constructive. So maybe you've identified the right problem, but how are we going to figure out a solution? No, absolutely. But I would love to finish today on a theme of almost self-reflection. We had Sean Rad at Tinder saying that scaling of himself with the firms was one of the hardest aspects of the role. Your brother said his biggest challenge was his personal relationship to the company. Talk to me, how have you seen your personal relationship to the company change with the scaling? Yeah, definitely. You know, today we're just over 300 people. And so my role as CEO continues to evolve every year. I'd say, you know, initially my relationship with the business was much more of a doer, really getting into the weeds, really helping the teams figure out their operational challenges, highlighting priorities and things of that sort. Today, I've had to evolve my relationship. I no longer know every single person of the company. I actually interviewed the first 300 hires or so. And so that that allowed me to build one type of relationship. But now we have over 50 and probably close to 100 people that I didn't actually have a chance to interview at the business. And so I'm always reflecting on how do I communicate in a way where I express the vision that people can connect with? How do I make sure that I highlight the right priorities that address the broader groups, you know, thoughts and concerns? And so you just have to take a much more holistic view on the business. And one thing that Peter Levine really helped coach me on in this regard is to, to really look ahead, right? When you're a founder, you're thinking, what are you going to do that day? And as your team starts to grow a little bit, you're thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do this week or next? And once you hit, you know, maybe 50 people, you're starting to think, okay, well, what can I do next month? And, you know, what Peter was saying is don't fool yourself into thinking that you'll be able to manage your quarterly objectives. You need to start to think about the annual and the multi-year horizon and really zoom out. And so it's, it's actually been really good. This is the first time, you know, five years into the business that we've actually put together a three-year model based on, you know, financials and projections and everything else, and also a vision that goes along with that. I mean, we always knew where we were headed, but now we have actual numbers behind it as well. So I think my relationship has really grown as the scale of the business has also increased. And it all seems rosy, but uh, there's always inflection points that are challenging. I, I'd love stories as well. So I'd love you to take us to an inflection point in the leadership where something maybe went wrong. And, and how did that change significantly for you as a leader as a result of this? Yeah, certainly. I'd say, you know, the big challenges that you face as a leader is, is the team that you put together. And so when someone may not be working out on the leadership team, that always creates a, a big inflection point in the business. Sometimes it signals that your strategy may need to change and that's a little bit more straightforward. Other times the person isn't a fit. And, you know, we've had a few situations along the way where we've had to really amend both our strategy as a result of 
that person, the team not working out, but also indicating that it wasn't so much the person, but it was actually the plan that we had them executing on that needed to shift along with that change. And the second is, you know, when you make that hiring mistake and and really being honest with yourself to reflect and say, what is it that didn't work out? And sometimes, especially in the early days, you know, you tend to overlook perhaps some of the finer things like, is this person a culture fit? I've actually gone as far as to say, is this person a personality fit? Culture is important, but the way that you interact with your team around you is also extremely important. You can't overlook those small things. So uh, some pretty, pretty big lessons learned there with how to bring a team together and make sure that we're all pointed in the right direction. Ben, as I said, I heard so many great things from so many different people. I had the pleasure of your brother on the show a couple of months ago. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Harry. This was this was a really awesome conversation. And uh, hopefully we can follow up maybe in a year once we build the sales team and talk about the scaling challenges associated with that. Well, you heard it from Ben himself. A year's time, we will have Ben back on the show to talk about scaling the sales team at DigitalOcean. I want to say a huge thank you to him for giving up the time today to be on the show. If you'd like to see more from Ben, you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Uretsky. Also, I'd like to say a huge thank you to David Cohen and Jason Lemkin for the intros and questions for Ben today, without which this episode would not have been possible. Likewise, if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes at Sasta, you can on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. But before we leave you today, if you are a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, whether that be hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Now, Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you can also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay Trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there. Well, thanks to our friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Invoice Ninja, the leading open source platform to invoice, accept payments, track expenses, and time tasks. What's remarkable about Invoice Ninja is how fast and easy it is. Customers can create invoices in seconds and then get back to what they really want to do. But easy doesn't mean stripped down as the platform offers tons of additional functionality to serve different use cases from automatic billing to multiple tax settings many small businesses start with a free forever plan others seeking the most advanced features see more value in pro and enterprise plans and you can learn more at invoiceninja.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like invoice ninja did visit wepay.com forward slash sasta where you'll also find a really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments again that's at wepay.com forward slash sasta Now, as always, you know, we so appreciate all your support and we cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.